Let's see if I get this correct. I had this series of thoughts earlier today, and I didn't do it right away. I was too busy, so see if I can get it straight here. This uh, podcast is intended to correct and modify the podcast immediately prior to this one, in which I claim I knew how to convert the Amon device into Tesla's Pure Zero version of the same device, and I kind of botched it up. It turns out that there are absolutely no moving parts in the Pure Zero, in the Pure Zero version. There are all tubes of one type or another, which could easily get somebody like Peter Sava, who doesn't know what a, what Tesla was into, into mistakenly thinking they were all 12 radio tubes and that he was broadcasting from somewhere and receiving it at the car, rather than making it in-house, so to speak, as he drove along. I mean, heck, why bother receiving it when uh, so many other inventors have already been doing uh, synthetic production of so-called fuel of one type or another as they drove along, such as Leroy K. Rogers of Iona, Florida, uh, having to deal with uh, compressed air and compressing it as he drove along, or Stanley Meyer creating synthetic fuel, ammonia mixed with a little, tinged with a little bit of hydrogen as he drove along using air and water. So why should Tesla be any different? Why should he have to depend on energy being broadcast from somewhere else? Um, it's unfortunate that Peter Savoy has done so many different things. Well, maybe not a lot, but uh, um, weight enough with enough weight of error to each error that people have just written him off the books as being not credible. Uh, it doesn't help that he was never Tesla's nephew, but the fact that he didn't even know what he was talking about when he mentions twelve radio tubes. It's just, you know, it just adds insult to injury. But Tesla expected it, and he never came to um, bring it out for us to know what it is. So um, it's very easy to misconstrue because all we have is Peter Saver to go by. So, of course, we think it's he's uh, a fraud or a con artist, and Tesla never did any such thing in, in the 1930s. But I hold differently. Because he did a demonstration of a Pierce Air conversion into electric car prior to Peter Savo in 1897, which Arthur Matthews gives us a different version, that a hydraulic transmission system was in use. And I suspect um, from the simulations I've done, I've seen one that I call my golden ratio property version, in which it pulses or strobes. Uh, peaks of explosive reactive power rather than simply exploding. And so it doesn't have a braking mechanism per se of, let's say, iron or the properties of iron or the properties of a permanent magnet. It simply collapses its explosive uh, tendency in a periodic manner, in a very repeatable manner, so that it can average out to a nice, um, even... Um, uh, what's it called, RMS output. Um, and that would require a, a hydraulic transmission system because the frequency was so high. The parasitic frequency is just so high, the only way to deal with it would be a diaphragm on the side of a hydraulic transmission system and a reciprocating solenoid to act, act as a plunger on that diaphragm to create an ultrasonic um, uh, frequency uh, uh, window a window of frequency against the fluid 
And then a uh, one-way valve, such as uh, Tesla's valvular conduit, um, to translate the reciprocating motion, the vibrating motion, into a one-way directional circulation of the fluid in the hydraulic transmission system. And then the um, bladeless turbine to turn that into rotary motion at the wheels. So it makes sense that he could have done a demonstration prior to the Peter Savo version that in which Arthur Matthews says nobody there was there to accompany him because he didn't need anybody to accompany him. He only needed Peter to, Peter to keep track of the gauge on the dashboard dealing with the pressure of something. And it was probably a pressurized tube among those 12 tubes. Now, there was a fellow, I didn't look to see his name, his username on an energetic forum that was objecting along with Aaron Murakami to my presentation. Um, Aaron saying it's speculative, blah, blah, blah. Um, but this fellow brought up something very useful, and that is that Tesla dabbled in two-phase motors uh, in his AC motor design. Um, and that, without getting into any kind of phase conversion of multiples, um, you know, uh, like a single-phase generator uh, interlocking with a two-phase motor and either doubling or having the, the um, frequency of revolutions. I forget which way it goes. And even when, when you're dealing with some whole number of multiples, it can be done, done to do the conversion. But avoiding that and just doing a strict um, conversion overs to keep the RPMs the same uh, 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 of the motor... Uh, relative to the power station in question, it's possible to theorize and speculate that the 12 radio tubes divides down into six in two groups to take care of a two-phase motor. And then we just have to identify which section of the Amman circuit in the Amman version translates directly over to a tube in the Pierce Arrow version. Now, when I do over-unity circuits, usually everything has to be in pairs or more, two at least, usually two inductances, two um, capacitances. And that's probably why my first successful simulation was applying Eric Dollard's LMD ver uh, modality of his analog computer into an over-unity circuit of three daisy chain modules, not shorted between the coil, the two sides of each transformer, but using isolation transformer design. And the inductances had to be a minimum of 300 Henrys and the capacitance a minimum of 10 farads in order to get over unity, and then the thing just takes off. And it takes off even better when the power source is cut off, uh, just there to initiate it, a sine wave uh, generator uh, to uh, get things going. Um, and then it just continues to create sine waves of ever-increasing amplitude until infinity is reached, or you know anything short of that, obviously, to destroy the circuit. Um, and so that was the beginning of me understanding that things have to be in pairs, because as Jim Murray points out in his transforming generator, you have to have one type of reactants, let's say it's capacitive reactants or inductive reactants, modifying the field of the other component of the same type. So if you're going to have two inductors, 
one modifies the field of the other and the other modifies the field of the first. So you don't have a solid output of inductance of, a, of inductive reactance anymore from each inductive component, from each com inductor. Instead, you have a field of inductance, not just as we would consider a field of um, amps and volts and watts and whatnot, but we have a field of inductance that it gets modified and changed by this, the physical inductor, the other inductor, the physicality of the other inductor. And that change is a parametric uh, modification, making it possible to see that when you do, we do things in pairs, it's possible to get parametric um, alteration and the consequent to that, an alteration of the level of amps and volts, either increase or decrease. It can expand or shrink. Without changing the physicality of inductance or the physicality of capacitance, it's, it, by doing things in pairs, it's possible to get um, Kit Carson's uh, results without having to have a, mob, uh, a um a component with moving parts. And so when we switch from the Amon version to the Piercero version, the Tesla's Piercero version, they're all tubes and there's no moving parts. Every single component to come becomes a tube of one sort or another. May It may look like to somebody like Peter Seva as a radio tube because he doesn't know any different what to call it, but they're not. They're, but they are tubes nonetheless. And Eric Dollett has made a point of pointing out that the artistry of tube making a uh, century ago was, or thereabouts, was a fine art indeed because he grew up learning in his, I think, aunt's, aunt, his aunt was in that profession or a low-level lackey job or whatever you want to call it. And so he learned for, uh, working with her what it's like to create tubes of various types and they come in all types of, of varieties. And I think that was the problem with Peter Savo's lack of discernment. He just called everything a radio tube because it was a tube, and he didn't know what else to think. All right. Because things have to be in pairs, and because everything is solid state in Pierce-era version, the rotary uh, converter, the, uh, excuse me, the rotary, rotary electrostatic device of Kit Carson now becomes two tubes instead of one. And the transistors, each is one tube each, so that's four tubes right there. And then the Leyden jar, another tube, because um, according to Wikipedia, um, Nikola Tesla invented the variable vacuum tube capacitor. And if you've got a variable one, you can just as well have a solid uh, one that doesn't vary. But he could have used a variable one to fine-tune uh, to get things just nicely tuned um, rather than having uh, a, a vacuum tube capacitor with a fixed capacitance. Uh, so how, what are we up to now? <laughs> um, oh, and, and then the non-ionizing, um, or excuse me, the, the ionizing but non-plasma uh, space between the copper spheres is another tube. So we got one tube representing the space between the spheres. We have another one representing the Leiden jar, which is a capacitor, a vacuum tube capacitor. Variable or not, doesn't matter at this point. We're just counting tubes. 
Another tube it serves, or another two tubes serves as the two transistors, and another pair of tubes serves as the two sides of Kit Carson's rotary device because there's the parallel plates of one, there's one set of parallel plates, and then there's another set of parallel plates, and that becomes two tubes rather than one. So what is that? That's uh, two, um, <laughs> two, um, two Kit Carson tubes, let's call it for lack of a better term. Then you add two more tubes for transistors, that makes four. Um, then you got the Leidenjar, that's five, and then the one, the space between the spheres, that's six. So it's possible to subdivide 12 tubes into six to accommodate a two-phase motor and have six unique tubes to replace every single component in the Amman circuit with a tube. And to me, this is like far out because this is exactly what it's supposed to be. Now, whether or not trimetal is still a feature, I don't know. It may be a requirement that the leads... Uh, it, well, when we start to describe the, the, the fashioning, the nature of each tube, yeah, the, the trimetal aspect of the Amman device still carries over, but it starts looking very mild in its significance by comparison to the, the, the nature of the tubes themselves. So the only one I have to focus on for eludus, eludate, elucidate, <laughs> for elucidation purposes is the Kit Carson pair of tubes because all the others are just common knowledge among electrical engineers, so I don't have to go there. We got neon bulbs for the space between the spheres, We've got vacuum tube capacitors for the Leyden jar. We've got transistors already in tube format before we went to silicon wafer format. Um, so that leaves us with the Kit Carson device. How does that convert over into tubular <laughs> format? Um, that's a good question. Now, what was I thinking earlier? So now the, this now the explanation helps to elucidate why it was so important for the powers that be, whoever they are, God, you know, nameless, anonymous fools who felt the need to be destructive, why was it necessary to burn down the printing house um, and destroy the plates of the 8th edition of Joseph Newman's book? Why was it so important? Because the guy was a little bit of a nutcase. He was, and only because he was not schooled, he was ignorant about what he was doing. And so he made up his own theories to explain what he was doing. The fact is, he did it. Uh, whether or not he had help from somebody else rather than God is a whole other slew of can of worms. But regardless, what he put in his book, I've already pointed out in, in my other podcasts, is a lie because that's can't create over unity or you can't just make it bigger and get over unity. It doesn't work. I, I bought the 8th edition, I paid a good $400 for it, and taking, I think it's fourth chapter, Dr. Hastings' analysis, a physicist, using the knowledge that he gives us about the criteria of the table model, the 300-pound table model, in which the spinning permanent ma magnet is outside the coil, not in the interior, there's no way it can create over unity. It's impossible unless the frequency of revolutions of the permanent magnet, so-called permanent magnets, is increased to something like 100,000 um, RPM, which comes to 6 million cycles per second. 
which is impossible for a mechanical device to spin that fast. So that's when I realized that he was lying, but it didn't make sense because I trusted him. So I published my information, and I found out to my... Um, I found out from someone else what the secret was. And when we replaced the permanent magnets with um, a noble gas with a lower breakdown voltage than air, it starts making sense because all you need is a varying electrostatic field applied to a noble gas such as helium to cause it to vibrate at a very high frequency in its exportation or emission, I should say, its emission of an electromagnetic varying field over time. And that makes up the difference of what was missing because instead of rotating permanent magnets giving a rotating electromagnetic field, now we've got molecules of helium giving a varying electromagnetic field over time but at a very high frequency because that's the only factor that has to be changed in the, new, in the Newman device to make it over unity as he claims it was. Of course, his version was not because it only had a rotating permanent magnet on the inside and he let nobody touch it so he never let anybody find out that it was a charade that he went to a lot of trouble with his demonstration version uh, getting it to start uh, since he was a bodybuilder, he made a huff and a puff and like he was going to blow somebody's house down when in fact a child could have done it with their pinky. You know, it was that... It, when you're dealing with hollow PVC tubes filled with helium wrapped with an open coil, it doesn't take a whole lot of energy to get it going, to get it rotating. So exposing that lie, though, helps explain something about the nature of overunity regarding his device and it kind of hints now in translating this over to the Pierce version of the Iman device, why it was so important to destroy Newman. Well, he, he did a lot of that himself. <laughs> he did a very good job <laughs> keeping uh, this, uh, the secret to himself, claiming God gave it to him instead of uh, Byron Brubaker so in the 80s. So he did a lot himself on his own. It's no wonder he was a sorry mess at the end of his life. He did it to himself. So I can't feel sorry for the guy, but it's helpful to know why it was so important to burn down the printing house that printed his book, his eighth and destroy the eighth edition plates. You're lucky if you you probably could find a copy of the eighth edition online. I found one, and that was um, six years ago for four hundred dollars. It took a big chunk out of my <laughs> change. Boy, it was hard to recover from that purchase, but it was well worth it because I did everything in LT Spice, not even using Microcap, which I considered to be a better version of the Spice family of simulators and more professional, and it cost a bundle of money to buy it before it, uh, they went out of business and, and the guy retired who started that company because he was flush with cash. <laughs> he didn't have to make money anymore. Um, but it was used by the lab of uh, one of the Canadian universities, I forget which one, Manitoba or something. They used it in their lab for their um, electrical engineering students. So, I'd, And hey, it cost something like $4,500 near the end. When I first came upon it using the trial version, it was 1500 And then it just kept going up. It went up to 2500 and before you know it, it's 4500 And then they went out of business and, re and the guy retired. So if that's not a measure of 
honor and respect for something that is very highly esteemed, that it was realistic as best as a simulator could be without worrying about materials of construction and their prop various properties, like an iron coil versus a copper coil, and just assume all coils are copper coils, and forget about variations of parameters, unless you program it in, which I never did try to figure out um, how to do that, because I don't know properties very well. I'm not very good at that. So I just take the simulator as it comes and then just deal with it and then learn what it's teaching me. So that's what I learned. <laughs> All Spice family of simulators assume copper coils. Be that as it may, um, I don't doubt its reliability, but of course all simulators are oversimplifications of the real world because they don't take things, many things, such only one of which is properties of materials of construction into account. So that doesn't mean that simulator is wrong, it just means it's not as good as the real world in telling you what's going on. But so what? It's giving you an idea, a vague idea of what's going on. That's good enough for me. Anyway, getting back to the Pierce arrows. So Knowing Joseph Newman now, having already dealt with him and having already exposed the lie of figuring it out for myself before Byron ever told me anything because he never told anyone. He, didn't, he kept it a secret to himself too, just like Joseph Newman kept it to himself. But only because I exposed the lie that it was a question of frequency and then immediately looked it up, what Byron was telling me over the phone to verify from a second source what he was saying, then I knew, oh yeah. <laughs> that's what happens when you excite helium with a varying electrostatic field you get a varying electromagnetic magnetic field of a very high frequency I can't remember the figure but it was high enough to qualify itself and qualify what Byron was saying I mean to say and qualify what I had simulated as being one and the same more or less so I had stumbled or <laughs> my way into the solution because that's the way I did things on the simulator. I did trial and error. So, okay, let's vary everything. Uh, Joseph Newman said make everything bigger. I did that. Nothing worked until I made the frequency higher and then it worked, which of course is an impossibility with the design in his book. Anyway, so now everything becomes solid state and due to the Joseph Newman device, it's possible to come up with a solid state version of the Kit Carson device. It's very easy, in fact. Because instead of rotating plates, creating a rotating, or excuse me, a, um, a varying electrostatic field over time, which is what he did, Joseph Newman did with his big, huge stationary coil and the rotating permanent magnets on the inside, he was able, from the, the vantage point, from the perspective, the point of view of the rotating permanent magnets, from their point of view, the electrostatic field surrounding them is rotating because they're rotating, so if we take them as being stationary and the coil outside as being rotating at right angles to the permanent magnets, then we've got ourselves a rotating uh, electrostatic field, which means a varying rota uh, electrostatic field over time. <sighs> okay, and it's a sine wave because it's a rotary. So it's, I, that's the way I simulated it. Uh, I used a sine wave generator in the LT Spice um, simulation that I, w I had come up with. Um, and I just upped the frequency to 100,000 um, hertz. Anyway, cycles per second, if you prefer. So, um, in honor of Eric Dollard <laughs> and a few other people. Um, <laughs> let's see. 
So what we have then, so these rotating plates of Kit Carson that are supposedly creating a parametric uh, capacitance, in other words, a capacitance which varies over time, now all we have to worry about is how do we duplicate that in a solid-state format. And it turns out neon or helium, for instance, comes to the rescue. Air would too, but it's a little harder because it has a higher uh, breakdown voltage level. So what I imagined, I thought to myself, okay, we know the structure of the capacitor. We know, according to Eric Dollard, that the voltage is stored in the dielectric, not in the plates. Take away the plates, replace them, and the storage is still there. And I learned this the hard way. I, I mildly electrocuted myself, finding this out the hard way, having my bare feet on the... Oh, let's see, which is it? The neg negative plate, uh, the cathode of a negative ion generator. Instead of a needle creating negative ions, it was a plate. And you were meant to put your bare feet on it. It was manufactured, may probably still be, by a guy up in Washington State near the coast. And I bought it, and it produces, I don't know, I think it's 70,000 volts on the plate. And it's just a, a stainless steel plate big enough to put your feet on. And you become the tip of a needle of a negative ion generator. And I learned various things. If I take me out of the equation and the plate out of the equation and connect the plate to an earthing bed sheet, uh, crisscrossed with silver wires threaded into the sheet, the whole voltage goes up tremendously. And you start frying the poor little um, transformer that you have to buy separately uh, to plug the thing into the wall to convert AC into DC. You fry the darn thing. It doesn't last very long. You, you go through them very quickly, let's put it that way. And the voltage, when you get on the bed naked and you touch the sheet, it's a zap. <laughs> you, you think about walking across the carpet in your bare feet and you touch the doorknob. Think of magnifying that a little bit. So I, I managed to electrocute myself twice or not twice, but two different types, <laughs> and testing. And I'm telling you, sleeping on that thing is a gas. It's far out. It's very high voltage. You better not touch anything grounded. But, oh, boy, you'll really kill yourself. But the other instance I electrocuted myself was touching the rubber cord, the rubber insulated plug that went into the wall to remove it. And they told you, don't do that while your feet are on the plates. I did it anyway. I have to test out everything. This is why I can't be trusted to build anything because I'll do stupid things. Oh, I got to find out what happens. I want to feel it. <laughs> you know, I'm like a method actor, but you can't afford to be a method actor in, in electrical engineering. Uh -uh. Don't work. <laughs> so I did my, because the insulation of the cord was highly charged because it's a dielectric. And my hand was near the outlet, which means I created an ionizing pathway between my hand and the grounding port, which was bare. It was not being utilized, because you can't with, a, with one of these devices that builds a voltage that wouldn't make any sense. And because my feet were on the plates, I created a circuit, and I was creating a pathway for the voltage to drain through my body to ground. Very stupid, but I learned that plastic surrounding an electric cord is not an insulator merely. It's also a dielectric medium to store voltage. So this 
verified for, to, extremely well to my satisfaction that Eric Dollard is right and all the conventional wiseacres are wrong. They're not so wise after all when they say this, the, the, the plates of the capacitor stores the charge, not the dielectric material between them because the dielectric material is an insulator. Yeah, it is, but it's also the storage medium. <laughs> it just does, it's, it's an insulator for the current is what it is, but it stores the voltage. And that's where they go wrong and they start miserating, uh, confusing, making a muddle of electrodynamic theory. A basic Ohm's law is current is one thing and voltage is another. We don't mix them up. Who would, in God's earth would mix them up? Yet the way they teach that dielectric materials is merely an insulator is mixing things up because it's only talking about one half of Ohm's law's perspective of an insulating dielectric material. It doesn't talk about the other half. It says, oh yeah, it blocks current. Oh yeah, but it, it also stores voltage. Instead of passing current, it stores voltage. Duh. I'm telling you, I'm sometimes, the, the way uh, professors and the way the schools of engineer, electrical engineering behave, it, it makes me wonder what their IQ is or what kind of IQ what they want their students to be when they acquire the knowledge. They want them to acquire knowledge that only a stupid person would acquire and utilize in their practice. I'm getting very hot. I, I hate getting angry over the, the stupidity of people, but I'm sorry. i got to open the windows here. I'm getting really hot. This is hot stuff. Okay. So, we take the Joseph Newman knowledge, and we take Eric Dollard's correct knowledge of the behavior of a capacitor, and we do something interesting. The PVC sewage pipe that surrounded the neon gas, excuse me, the helium gas of the Joseph Newman device, forgetting the open coil surrounding it for the moment, that's basically what the tube is to substitute for the Kit Carson device. Because instead of the rotating plates, rotating the electrostatic field, now we've got, um, let's see, let me see if I got this right. I have, I'm trying to remember what I, what I came up with. Okay. So imagine now, let's put it this way. Let me approach it a different way <laughs> so that I can remember what I was thinking and maybe grope for the memory because I don't exactly remember what I came up with. Um, I had a nap in between and I'm still a little dazed. Um, we, take the capac we take the dielectric material in the middle of a capacitor and we'll, we blow a nice little bubble in it. Let's say it's a glass dielectric material and we blow a bubble in it and turn it into a tube. So now we got two plates on the outside of the tube, not leads or electrodes going into the interior. And they're on the outside. So we don't have a Leyden jar in which a plate is on the outside and one uh, another on the inside. Now they're both on the outside on opposite sides of the glass Leyden jar. In the glass Leyden jar, we've sealed it off and filled it with neon gas. Okay? So it's entirely possible that the Amon brothers could have done this. <laughs> Except they couldn't because they wouldn't be able to pressurize it, maybe. Well, no. If you figured out a way to seal it, it could be done. Hmm. This is very intriguing. <laughs> Why didn't they? Um, I don't know. They didn't think of it. I, whatever. Um, so now we got a capacitor with a medium on the inside that's going to respond 
to the voltage coming in from the outside. And if the voltage coming in from the outside on the two plates on the outside varies over time, now we've got a varying electromagnetic field at high frequency being created on the inside. And that takes care... Oh, that was it, see? This is why I had to approach it this way. That takes care of two components in the Amon device that I've theorized or speculated or intuited, as received intuitively as I prefer to say. Some people would prefer to say I spe I'm speculating. Um, but now I'm speculating about the conversion is what it amounts to because I am using logic and inspiration, a little bit of both. So this takes care of the iron coil as well as the Kit Carson device because um, we have now instead of a single singular Kit Carson device that is rotating of two sets of plates creating a varying electrostatic excuse me, a varying capacitance which of course results in a varying electrostatic field. Now we have two um, separate tubes filled with, let's say, helium that are capacitors but with their plates on the outside on opposing sides of this tube nothing metallic on the inside and they are two tubes that are made together at the same time so that they share the same dielectric unity in other words the glass we don't form a single bubble we form two bubbles with a glass membrane between them which continues to surround each side of this figure eight in three dimensions, this three-dimensional version of a figure eight in which two tubes were made at their production time as two tubes um, with the molten glass that, you know, solidified to create a wall between them of glass. So that's all one dielectric. Remember, dielect the, the properties of space is solidarity, it's unity, it's one. The properties of time is one, now, eternal now. Everything is now. It's only the presence of matter and its constantly changing state that gives us the illusion that space is not a singularity. It has distance and it changes over time, which means it gives us the illusion that time is not eternal now. It's yesterday, tomorrow, and this moment. And so we get change, but it's an illusion only due to matter and energy, which are projections of space and the eternity of now anyway. Um, they are, uh, literally, matter and, and also the energy of its dynamic quality of, of matter is an illusion. It's a mirage. It's a um, projection on a screen, if you will, according to Plato's version, uh, shadows cast on the screen of the mind. But the real nature of reality is a singularity of space and a singularity of time and or unity if you prefer and there is no change as far as space or time is concerned it doesn't change does not exist except when we consider the so-called mirage the maya the illusion of of matter in a constantly changing um, state of in its, of its energy status anyway that's important to keep as your background because this dielectric material surrounding two tubes joined as one, they have a singularity of dielectric. That means the voltage stored 
by one pair of plates on one of these tubes is also storing the voltage of the other two plates on the other two because they're joined. The dielectric material is, is fused at the time of their formation as one dielectric material. And yet there are two um, spaces or contents separate for, kept separate from each other of some noble gas such as helium or neon inside these two different vessels that are joined together with a uh, glass wall between them and glass surrounding the rest of their exterior wall. It's all one dielectric. <clears throat> so now they can parametrically vary the inputs as a consequence to the inputs of the two sets of plates, the two pairs of plates. They can parametrically respond. Just as Kit Carson's device responds parametrically, this can too, and it's solid state. And yet it's two tubes joined as one dielectric medium of storage. But two electrical sets of connections, making four in all. So that completes my description of the conversion into a solid-state version of the Amon device, all made out of tubes. No iron barrel-shaped coil, no Kit Carson rotary device, no pair of copper spheres, no pair of copper tubes underneath those pair of copper spheres, no Leyden jar, that's a minor consideration since it's shrunk down into a tube size, but it's still pretty much similar design, more or less. Um, and no pair of transistors um, in liquid format, um, which a lot of people have been questioning the veracity of that kind of scheme. Fine, question it. So let's just skip the Amon version and go straight to the Tesla Piercera version, which everybody claims to, is a fabrication and a lie on the part of Peter Savo, who didn't know enough to lie properly. Okay? That's the way I take... I'm sorry, I get angry. That's the way I take Peter Savo. He's not smart enough. He's dumb. He's, a, he's ignorant. He's not dumb. Well, we could say he's dumb, but he's ignorant. He doesn't know what Tesla did. So how could he properly interpret the situation? And if Tesla lied to him outright and gave him, oh, it's 12 radio tubes, and Peter's going Peter's to say the same thing he was told. He doesn't know enough to, to look, at the, let, look at the tubes, examine them, and say, Tesla, you're lying to me. He didn't know. He could not correct so if anybody lied, it was not Peter Savo. He was just passing the lie to us that Tesla gave him so that the truth would not out. Because Tesla is not a scientist. Like Steinmetz, he was an inventor, like himself. Like Newman, <laughs> taking his secrets with him to his grave that we have to uncover, but recognize that Tesla was not a scientist. He did not share his information. So if anybody lied, it was not Peter Savo. He just didn't know any better to correct the lie that Tesla gave him. All right? I, I, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm, I don't think, I'm not trying to make out Tesla to be uh, an evil guy. He was just trying to be what inventors do, keep his secrets to himself, you know? Hey, how else are you going to be an inventor and make any money and be able to patent something if you don't keep a few secrets? You have to. All right, so that you have to put this in the correct context so that you don't get the false notion that Peter Savo was smart enough to come up with these lies himself. He was not. In fact, 
who was smart enough to equal Tesla a hundred years ago anyway. Steinmetz was. He figured it out, the AC motor and AC generator. And Eric Dollard figured out things. Jim Murray figured out things. Paul Babcock figured out things. Yeah, if you get somebody smart enough, but Peter Salvo was not. So it's wrong to hold the liability with Peter Salvo. He's not to blame. He's just a low-level lackey trying to steal ideas, didn't even know what he was trying to steal, didn't even know how to correct what he was given to be able to steal it. Well, Tesla didn't want him to steal it, <laughs> so that's why he lied to him. I'm repeating myself. I've said this before, but it's worth repeating for emphasis that Peter Savo did not lie. He just passed a lie to us and could not correct it, all right? That's what Peter Savo did from the standpoint of his lack of credibility. And he also added in the, in the thing that, oh, yeah, out of pride, you know, vanity, out of vanity, really empty pride, vanity. Oh, I'm his nephew. And uh, everybody except Tesla believed him because Tesla knew <laughs> if he had Peter as a nephew or not. But he tolerated him. He tolerated him because he proved to be useful on occasion doesn't mean he liked having him around. <laughs> I don't think I would either. <laughs> because the story, as Peter tells it, is that Peter annoyed Tesla with his, all of his pestering questions. And Tesla closed his lips and couldn't get away from the, the, the place fast enough once he parked the car in, in, a, in a barn. He couldn't get away fast enough because he was damn annoyed because Peter was hammering at him. He was being... A real annoying person at that point in the storyline. And nobody questions that the veracity of that part of the story that Peter tells us. He's admitting to us that he's annoying Tesla towards the end of the story, causing Tesla to leave as quickly as he can and keep his mouth shut and not say another word. Whereas before, earlier in the story, he was more open and relaxed. So it, it's, it, you know, in his conversation with Peter as they went along together. So how come everybody ignores that part of the story in which Peter actually admits that he's being foolish in his behavior? He's not able to control himself. He's getting all excited, I guess, and he can't control himself, and he becomes his own worst enemy at that point, basically. And if he hadn't made that error, we'd know more, <laughs> but we don't. <laughs> So, I mean, come on. you got to analyze it. If you're going to analyze anything, you have to analyze everything. You can't stop short and come to your own shortcut conclusions just because you don't like Peter. Well, Tesla didn't either. So what? But you can't afford to do that when trying to solve a mystery because now you're coming in with prejudices of your own and you're not going to solve it at all, period. You won't succeed. You cannot afford to have prejudices against anyone. You have to assume that everyone is worthy of consideration to whatever degree that worth is until you know what that worth is. You cannot presume what it is. Just because somebody else says he lied that he's a nephew. So what? Forget about it. Get off it. Stop worrying about one little mistake. All right? Stop it already. It really annoys me that people get hung up on his credibility overall. I mean, since when? We all make mistakes. 
But that doesn't mean we're totally imperfect, that we make only mistakes and we don't get something right on occasion. Even Hitler got a few things right on occasion. His assembly line version of Henry Ford in how to kill people in a nice, efficient manner. He thought that was pretty cool. So what? Oh yeah, human suffering. So what? He got something right at least called efficiency. You got to give people credit for what they do and get past the imperfections. If you want to analyze them, you have to look past the imperfections and honor and respect and give credit where credit is due and pay homage to what they got right. Okay? <laughs> I don't care about the morality issue. You can't afford to be moralistic when you want to analyze a mystery. You can't afford it. It is too costly a mistake. It will cost you, and you will not solve the mystery. You have to be literally a cold-hearted scientist, and I think there are very few people who are capable of that because they let their emotions get in the way. And appeal to emotion is one of the five major fallacies of logic. You cannot afford to let it get in your way. I'm looking at this beautiful bunny rabbit hopping around. He's hopping towards me. Oh, he's looking around, seeing if there's danger. Oh, he's so cute. He's such a tiny little bunny. Oh, he's going to cross right in front of me. Oh, he's so adorable. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, that helps calm me down. God gave me a bunny to help me calm down. Okay, so I, I, I hope I've made my point clear. You have to be a cold-hearted person. And Sherlock Holmes' character appears that way, you know? Because that's the only way to solve a mystery. You have to be cold-hearted about it and look past the prejudices of the immorality and the imperfections of people to get at what is true and ignore the parts that are not, to honor the parts that are true and give respect and credibility, no matter how fiendish that person is, that they at least got something right, okay? That's the only way to go about this and to succeed. I hope I've repeated myself for emphasis enough times to make my point because I really can't stand it. It bothers me to no end. How stupid people can be forgetting the rules of logic. You know, appeal to emotion. You can't afford to go there and get stuck there. You can't afford to. It's just not fitting of a scientist to get stuck there. Let alone appeal to authority, appeal to common sense, which Wikipedia loves to do. Oh, let's vote on what the truth is so we don't argue over it. These three fallacies, major fallacies, out of the five major fallacies that I learned in, when I went to university long ago, are the three most popular ones in Western culture. So they're the only three that I committed to memory. The other two, I've long since forgotten what they are, and all the minor ones as well. I, I don't care. These three are so popular, it's, it's a tragedy of human behavior that they're so popular. It's pandemic. But this one is the problem. Appeal to emotion when we come to Peter Savo, and we can't afford to make that mistake. We cannot afford to. All right?